Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss macro developments and asset allocation with our UBS Chief Investment Office as well as our third-party asset manager partners. Uh, Today's conversation will largely focus on an outlook for 2022, though of course we will spend some time on Fed policy, equity markets, risk considerations, and of course, portfolio positioning. So uh, joining us for today's conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist for Invesco. So Jason, Christina, it's great to be back on the mic with you both. I know we've been together for this podcast. Uh, This might be our third appearance altogether. So great to be back. Looking forward to hearing your current thinking. Welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Absolutely. So perhaps we could begin with the big picture to set the stage. So, Christina, as we all know, the start of 22, the past four weeks, it's been very challenging, a challenging time for investors. So now that we're here at the start of February, Christina, what is your market outlook for, let's say, the next six to 12 months? In other words, Christina, has your 2022 outlook at all changed since the beginning of the year? Well, yes and no. And and let me explain. First of all, the big picture. Um, Our expectation remains that inflation peaks in the middle of 2022. Um, And then it starts to cool very gradually into 2023. We probably don't get close to or at target until the end of 2023 when it comes to inflation. Now, in this environment, uh, developed market central banks uh, essentially do just enough to combat inflation. Uh, so uh, current tightening expectations really run the gamut. I do believe we'll see probably only three to four rate hikes. Um, and that's enough to enable the the Fed to engineer a soft landing for the economy. That is my base case. So essentially economies glide into trend real growth rates. So what does that mean for, for markets? Uh, well, it means that that slowdown uh, results in what it typically does, uh, which is outperformance by secular growth and defensive. Now, that's contrary to conventional wisdom because we're seeing a lot of pressure on the higher valuation names like technology. But I think that will be very temporary. And as we look out 6 to 12 months, uh, growth is likely to, to um, uh, hold the leadership position. In terms of regions, um, it makes the U.S. look more attractive because um, the major indices in the U.S. just have more exposure to secular growth and defenses than does, for example, um, developed Europe. Uh, and then uh, but also attractive is emerging markets because it's in a different place than developed markets. Um, what we're seeing is many EM central banks um, in advanced stages of monetary tightening. And in fact, the PBOC providing more accommodation. Um, we're also seeing fiscal stimulus in China. So our anticipation is that emerging markets uh, start to reaccelerate later this year, um, led by China. Uh, so, so EM is an attractive place as well, also being helped by an increase in vaccination levels and, of course, 
the immunity provided by the spread of, of the Omicron variant. Well, thank you, Christina. Quite a few topics in there, which we can look forward to expanding on in a few moments. Uh, Jason, want to get your take from the vantage point of the Chief Investment Office as far as market outlook over the next six to 12 months. Can you walk us through that and cite whether the CIO has had to rethink anything in consideration of the past four weeks? Yeah, Dan, we entered the year with a, like a pretty you know, positive outlook on the overall macroeconomic environment in terms of growth still being above long-term trend, inflation moderating throughout the year. So a generally supportive environment for risk assets and for equities. Uh, and even though it's been a, a choppy start to the year, and certainly you know, down, that kind of fundamental view hasn't changed. I think I would echo much of what Christina said in terms of the you know, kind of inflation moderating, the Fed being able to you know tighten policy, but not so much that it leads to a hard landing. I, if you use the term soft line, it's to me, I think that's kind of that's the key kind of debate for this year of whether the Fed can do it or not. And we'd be more in the camp that ultimately it'll still veer more towards a soft landing. So even though the Fed has been more hawkish than anticipated back on January 1, you know, we're also thinking was that rates will rise this year. And we've seen it you know, move thus far, and I think that that will continue. So that macro environment, that market outlook hasn't changed overall. I think where I'd say we differ from, you know, the outlook that Christina just laid out was that you know, things like, you know, value stocks, more cyclical stuff, commodities, uh, more developed market equities would be beneficiaries of that, whereas you'd be not cautious necessarily on growth or tech. We just don't think they're going to be kind of market outperformers. And uh, just largely because of, you know, a macro environment, especially with the rates rising, we've seen already headwind that's created thus far this year for, you know, parts of the whole growth tech complex. Some of that is kind of the, the plotiness has kind of come out, but I think there's more headwinds. So at least on a relative basis, we'd steer towards the the view that we've had really for, the, for a number of months now, kind of favoring more cyclical value-oriented parts of the market. So from listening to your respective outlooks, clearly the Fed is a substantial factor. The Fed, it does continue to surprise with increasingly hawkish comments. I think back to the most recent Fed statement and the following press conference where you did hear a more hawkish-sounding Chairman Jerome Powell. Christina, from your vantage point, is the market trajectory, is it really primarily just a function of what the Fed does this year, or are other factors, thinking about the pandemic, maybe geopolitics, growth, are those equally or even more important ultimate market determinants? Dan, I have to say, I, I truly believe the Fed is the major factor uh, driving markets this year. Uh, and yes, certainly supporting roles are played by um, factors such as the pandemic, especially if, for example, a variant were to emerge that's protected, that's not protected against by existing vaccines or, or geopolitics or growth. But, um, but the Fed really is the driver. Um, and that's because it holds the future of the U.S. economy and, uh, you know, frankly, central banks hold the future of, of their respective economies um, in, in their hands. And it's all about that very delicate balancing act. Uh, it's trying to engineer that slowdown that, that, uh, helps to to cool inflation while at the same time avoiding choking off the economic cycle. So so to me, it is uh, very much about the Fed this year. Christina, a follow-up question to you, which in some ways for you know, the market, I think it's a, you know, something that everyone's asking. You know, it's not an easy question to answer, but at what point does Fed policy become you know, too restrictive? Like say for equity markets, and we often ask, like, you know, how high can rates go before it really starts to impair equities? 
So what would you think is, if it's the Fed is the key story and you think ultimately leads to like a soft landing, at what point of Fed tightening is that sort of, you know, does that sort of change your view? Like how many hikes would it have to take or like in terms of balance sheet runoff or, or something else in terms of Fed policy? Do you think is that it become a, a you know, a, an okay environment to something that becomes a morally challenging environment? Jason, that is a terrific question because it's not just about rate hikes this year. We also have quantitative ta- tightening on the table. Uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, it, it appears that um, markets could tolerate and the economy, which is more important, could tolerate uh, three to four rate hikes this year. But we have to factor in the impact of, of uh, QT, this balance sheet reduction, which is coming a lot earlier in the tightening cycle than it did the last time around. Uh, and, you know, the, I, I find comfort, I, I, I take comfort from seeing that um quantitative tightening the last time around um, didn't, uh, you know, negatively impact the U.S. economy, and it also didn't negatively impact the U.S. stock market. If you look at the actual period uh, between when um, balance sheet reduction began and when it arguably prematurely ended, um, that was a period in which stocks were up um, nicely, global equities and U.S. equities. So, uh, so, you know, that's, that to me is where I, you know, where, where I take comfort and I say, you know, QT, uh, even at a higher level, um, is probably going to be okay in the context of, you know, if we only have three to four rate hikes this year, I think that can, can easily be tolerated. I think that when it gets higher than that, then we may run into problems. But, I will give the caveat that I think that quantitative tightening tightening in general is probably a good thing because it gives the Fed another lever um, and it takes pressure off the primary tool of rate hikes. And I believe the conventional wisdom um, is that rate hikes have a bigger impact on the economy than quantitative tightening. And and I, I do believe that's true. So so to have the Fed relying uh, a bit more on QT and having that as a tool, um, to me, it makes it more likely that we'll only have to have three to four rate hikes this year. So, Dan, I guess to, to answer kind of the question, you know, I would agree that you know, the Fed clearly is, is an important driver. But in some way, I'd almost say that it's, it's at this point in time, it's uh, actions are going to be hinging as much as on how the economy plays out the rest of this year. So what we've seen, you know, from the Fed communication, you know, I think it's pretty clear they want to get started in terms of raising rates and even, you know, trying to balance sheet reduction probably by mid-year. But I think they're also kind of eager that once they've sort of done, say, two or three hikes, which could be you know, already by the June timeframe, they could have hiked three times. But they also want to, like, slow down the pace and say, like, well, what's the impact on the economy? Uh, they want to see at that point, you know, as inflation moderating, as kind of, you know, a lot of economists are forecasting that by mid-year, at least should start to model moderate because of year-over-year effects become kind of easier, uh, meaning like it's going to lower inflation. They want to see where growth is and how it's kind of rebounded you know, from this Omicron you know, hit that we're seeing to growth right now. So it's almost the Fed has basically said, you know, we're outcome dependent uh, and we're sort of, you know, going to be very responsive to that. If the baseline scenario sort of plays out and it ends up being sort of four to five hikes that the market is pricing, then like, yeah, I would agree with Christina. I think the economy can handle that, that perfectly fine. But in some way, then, if the Fed's going to say this is what we're going to do, and then really everything we do thereafter is really depends on the data, whether it's better or worse. I think in some way, like the, the, the key ultimate driver for how markets do this year is whether inflation sort of moderates as everyone is kind of anticipating, whether growth does stay you know, well above trend and sort of balances back from the Omicron kind of slowdown we've experienced to start the year. So, yeah, it's almost put on par with what the Fed is going to do. Uh, 
because the Fed is so much conditional on kind of the economic data, uh, which is a little bit different than I think the past year and a half, where because the Fed was providing so much accommodation that, you know, just don't fight the Fed was a simple mantra. Now, if they look to tighten, you could say the same thing. You want to get more cautious. But I think the data is good. I think we can withstand, you know, the Fed pulling back a little bit. So it's a it's a sort of a dual element of the Fed and the Fed being dependent on the data. So I think the market's therefore somewhat dependent on the data as well. Thank you, Jason. And speaking of data, I know we're recording this on the eve of the release of the January employment report. So I know that will be a point of interest tomorrow, Friday, February 4th. Maybe we can spend a few moments talking about market behavior and Jason, the concept of market bubbles. That's something we spoke about, I believe, around this time a year ago. But uh, Christina, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, knowing that some have argued that a super bubble is finally starting to burst. So a lot of speculation has perhaps already come out of the market, thinking back to uh, the volatility in January. Christina, do you think there's more to go or could a bursting of these smaller bubbles really bring much more downside to the entire equity market? Dan, I, I, you know, that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer. It's so much easier to, to look at uh, this in the rearview mirror, obviously. But um, you know, in terms of, of how the market feels, it feels like there is more to go. Not a lot more to go, but it feels like there's more to go. And that we're likely to see a lot of chop until we actually get the first rate hike or we get close to that first rate hike. So, so I could see uh, a little more uh, in the way of, of um, losses, especially for tech, uh, for the NASDAQ. But, uh, but I, I do believe that we're likely to see a relatively significant rebound once we get past that first rate hike. Um, it's, it's something of, of um, uh, sell on the rumor, buy on the news uh, kind of, of um, um, feel to this, to this environment right now. Clearly a lot of kind of some of the fraudulent has come to the market, not only in January, but if we go back to really February of last year, things like you know, IPOs, non-profitable tech, SPACs, they all had sort of peaked out roughly mid-February of last year. And for those highs, some of these different indices are down 40, 50%. In some cases, there's stocks that are down 70, 80%. So a lot of it is, you know, that you can see has already kind of played out. There can't be that much more to go. Uh, can this cascade into something bigger? And I think, you know, the fear is, you know, is this a replication of like, you know, say 2000, where some of the riskiest stuff, you know, kind of first sold off and then it kind of brought the overall market down. And we're, you know, there could certainly be, you know, more pressure near term. They're just, you know, from investors looking to sell, that could lead to some, uh, you know, weakness in the markets overall. But at the same time, market composition is different today in terms of like the biggest companies are these, you know, mega cap tech stocks. That not all of them, but we've just seen in the reporting season where like, you know, the earnings growth from them is still very, very solid, uh, and they just continue to kind of grow into their valuations. So if those are the biggest companies, and you know, if you have a company that's worth two trillion dollars and the stock price goes up ten percent, that more than offsets. A bunch of smaller companies, you know, having the stock price fall by, you know, 20 or 30 percent. So it's I think that the scope for a bigger, broader bubble bursting, at least in the equity markets anytime soon, boring some sort of change in the economic outlook where like, you know, a recession is potentially imminent. And that seems very unlikely. So like most of the excess has is, is come out. That doesn't mean there couldn't be like another five or 10 percent pullback on some sort of news. But I think anything bigger than that, I think would require 
a recession you know, on the near horizon. And that looks unlikely at this point in time. Thank you, Jason. So maybe we can pivot over to the allocation side of the conversation. And Christina, I recall earlier you alluded to your preferences within equities. Perhaps we can revisit that. Can you expand, Christina, a bit on your preferences, whether it be regions, styles, sectors, against a backdrop of value stocks and international markets having outperformed the S&P 500 and growth stocks uh, thus far here in 2022? Sure, sure, Dan. Well, let me start from the perspective of, of um, in the U.S., we're entering a slowdown phase uh, of the economic cycle. And if we look at historical precedent, that is a period in which, uh, first of all, we see a convergence of returns among asset classes. Uh, so we're, we're not going to get that much more from equities than we are from fixed income in this environment, um, which, in my opinion, uh, makes, uh, you know, a, a strong argument for uh, being more active and discerning in order to, to uh, drive alpha. But, um, but in terms of uh, the styles that work in the slowdown phase of the economic cycle, that tends to be secular growth and defensive. Now, of course, we have this complicated by a Fed that has pivoted far more aggressively. So uh, in that kind of environment, we have uh, pressure coming on techs and higher valuation stocks. And that should be expected uh, as rates go up. And it's, it's uh, something we've seen before, but it tends to be relatively short-lived. So my expectation is that that um, when all is said and done over the next year, um, we'll see that that growth and and larger caps outperform. You know, let's look specifically at technology. There's some really key drivers there um, that that uh, I believe will lead likely lead to outperformance. First of all, you have um, uh, pretty significant um, profit margins there relative to other industries. Again, I'm, I'm making a pretty broad generalization about tech, but most of tech, we see that. Um, so as we're seeing expenses going up and we're, we're seeing pressures from inflation, um, they're likely to, to have less of an impact, right, in the tech space and, and we'll, we'll drive investors there. Now, of course, that doesn't mean all tech names, but you know, again, in in general terms. Uh, and then, of course, there's also um, a, a big upswing in CapEx spending. Uh, and more dollars are going to technology. There are also uh, OPEX dollars going to technology. Um, and, and that's more about the nature of this particular crisis, right? Because... Um, because we're, we're, we have a shortage of labor now, we have lower labor force participation, which is um, uh, largely due to the pandemic, um, that's, uh, that's causing um, difficulty sourcing employees. And uh, as a result, companies are almost forced to invest more in technology to make uh, existing workers more productive. So I think there are a lot of drivers for tech. Um, some some cyclical, some not. Um, and uh, you know, outside the U.S., of course, we're you know we're seeing different um, different economies in different phases of of the cycle. I mean, China is right in the midst of a mid-cycle slowdown, but I, I anticipate that will end soon, and that we're likely to see a reacceleration. Uh, and and so there are some some significant opportunities, but for patient investors when it comes to China equities. Um, regula- the regulatory environment is not over there. 
um, I think we have a much greater understanding of uh, the common prosperity goals. I think there's a better sense of, of where we'll see regulations going forward. But the regulatory environment is not over. Um, our view is that the, um, the combination of monetary and fiscal stimulus um, is a powerful countervailing force to the headwinds of, of the regulatory environment. Um, so, so that makes China equities attractive. And, you know, EM in general is likely to experience and benefit from um, a reacceleration in economic growth. But we're going to have to be very discerning and selective there. Um, it's not um, it's not a place to be an index investor. Thank you, Christina. Uh, Jason, I know CIO has been very much in the value camp. Anything you'd like to expand on as far as equity preferences, including any regions outside of the U.S. that investors might consider for opportunity? Starting with the value stocks, and, and you know, implicitly when we talk value, there's the other side of the coin is kind of growth. You know, the view that we have is inflation is, you know, we'll moderate, but we'll still be above levels that was kind of the, it's during the pre-pandemic, kind of basically the entire decade. Uh, and it could stay at levels around 2.5% or, or higher for like at least another couple of years, which means interest rates ultimately, you know, have to go higher. Uh, we also expect global growth to be, you know, solid and you know, demand for commodities to continue to be, you know, high, especially, you know, for, for oil. Like we've recently upgraded our price targets for oil such that they should be between 90 and $100 a barrel through year-end, kind of finishing close towards $100 by year-end. So this is an environment where typically it still favors, uh, you know, good growth kind of favors value stocks, higher rates favors financials, higher oil prices favors energy. So those are, you know, those are two key drivers of the value sector. So that's kind of generally kind of why we, we like it right now. The flip side is, is higher rates also equal, you know, a bit of a challenge for, or at least a headwind for growth broadly more in some parts more than others i think in that space you probably have to be within growth more a little more selective uh and thinking about like what are the ones that could be so resilient to higher rates you know, i think we've seen again which is the earnings for q4 you know, the largest companies just continue to you know produce very very strong earnings it's some of the smaller or mid-sized companies still big by general standards but you know the mega cap that have struggled a little bit on and delivering earnings. They might be the most sensitive to, you know, higher rates, especially as, as rates, you know, kind of in, in you know, the two to five year range rise. So I think you have to be a little more selective within the growth space in the same way within value, so leaning more towards financial and, and energy. Broadly speaking or, or globally, you know, the U.S. is in some ways not the best position mark for that because it skews so heavily towards kind of growth and defensive stocks versus a region like you know, Europe or the Eurozone in particular, that has more of a value bias. Um, and we've seen it you know, do well this year. We've seen an environment where uh, you know, ec- or, uh, economic growth, GDP growth can be higher in the Eurozone this year than versus the U.S. We've seen earnings revisions being higher in, in Eurozone versus the U.S. on a relative basis. Uh, you know, the Fed will hike rates starting in May or in March. ECB, today we got news that maybe, maybe there's a possibility by year end, but probably not until like early next year. Again, so policy is a little bit more supportive. So a global macro environment that we think is going to play out, generally this is speaking, is kind of an arm where value should at least perform as well and probably better than growth for the time being. Uh, and other regions that have more of a value tilt, therefore, could be you know, sort of some of the outperformers, at least relative to U.S. equities, given you know, the heavily skewed towards, uh, you know, to, towards growth that we have here. So it's a little bit contrasting with Christina. And, you know, some NFL, it comes down entirely to, you know, the macro environment, how much you think it matters, but I think that's kind of where you know where we would differ is, is a macro environment is probably a little more favorable 
uh, for value versus a little bit more challenging for growth. Thank you, Jason. M- maybe turning the coin to the fixed income side of the table, it has been, continues to be a challenging environment for fixed income investors. Thinking back to January, even munis had a pretty rough go of it and rates where they have been, uh, coupled with high inflation, these are all contributing factors. With that in mind, Christina, where do you see opportunities within fixed income at this time? What are you recommending that fixed income investors do? Well, it is a it is a tough time. And, and uh, I have to say that, that in this kind of environment, especially at the start of a tightening cycle, we have to anticipate there's going to be significant volatility. And it's not just going to be in equities, it's going to be in fixed income as well. Um, we are starting from a very low point in terms of, of where rates are, uh, and that's a factor as well. Um, floating rate appears, you know, floating rate uh, is, is an attractive area to think about um, in this kind of environment. High yield, um, just looking at historical precedent, have, you know, um, held up relatively well, um, usually in, in uh, rate hike uh, cycles. Um, you know, emerging markets said because of, of the, I think, more positive picture for EM, um, that would be an area um, of attractiveness as well, especially if uh, one's looking for um, a relatively high level of yield. I mean, we still are in a, a yield-starved environment. But I think the key is to be well diversified. I mean, we remain you know, constructive on investment grade. Um, and, and so to have exposure there, but recognize that, that we are likely to have volatility um, as, as digestion occurs um, in, in this phase of the rate hike cycle. Um, and having some humility is really important. Thank you, Christina. Uh, Jason, what about from your vantage point, where might fixed income investors gravitate to for opportunity? First, I'd echo what uh, Christina said regarding kind of floating rate instruments. You know, if rates are going higher, you know, the more exposure you have to interest rate sensitivity, you know, the worse the returns could be. And we saw that in the first month of this year with, you know, investment grade corporate credit, which is kind of a longer maturity or longer duration asset class being hit hard by the rise in, in rates. If rates keep going up, it's just going to be a challenge for, for that asset class to do well versus something like you know, senior loans where it's a floating rate. So as rates rise, it's not going to be impaired at all by so that interest rate sensitivity. Uh, given yields overall, I mean, there's not a lot of great opportunities. I think it's more figuring out, like, where can you, you know, get some income and also maybe kind of protect yourself a little bit as, uh, you know, from, from rising rates. Uh, so it's kind of generally kind of shortening duration a little bit. Uh, it becomes, I think, more attractive. And given the room we've seen in, like, even the very front end of the yield curve, like the two-year and even up to the five-year, now you can actually get a little bit of income uh, in return from the front end of the curve because a fair amount of hikes are priced in. So, uh, for those who are looking for like you know you know liquidity or cash now you know the front of the curve looks you know, a little more attractive than it did before. Uh, the thing I'd be concerned about uh, another factor with the, the credit markets overall is that uh, well the fundamentals still look very good, balance sheets look healthy, growth is and earnings are some, very solid. I would wonder if we're we've kind of maybe already hit the lows in this cycle of uh, where the spreads are going to be and like how tight they've been. They widened out in November and December. They kind of tightened back up. They now widened out again, uh, you know, just in the past couple of weeks. And the Fed hikes and, and throughout this year into next year, you know, the focus of the markets will tend to be on, like, you know, how we transition from, you know, mid-cycle to even later cycle, especially if the Fed gets to the point where it could be a little bit restrictive. 
credit as an asset class, it tends to be a bit of early warning, kind of the canary in the coal mine, because if, if, you know, if you're worried about defaults picking up as the economy slows down, credit spreads tend to widen, and they start performing poorly before equities. We're not at that stage yet, but depending on how the year evolves, you know, the relative attractiveness of, of you know, credit to equities could actually deteriorate because equities could still get more upside, whereas credit's going to be worried about that risk down the line. Uh, so it's just something to think about from an asset allocation perspective, not just fixed income, fixed income versus other asset classes. That, that is a potential challenge that could start to materialize uh, as we move later into the year and the Fed continues to, to hike rates. Um, so there's, there's kind of limited opportunities. I said, you know, generally, you know, reduce duration, kind of reduce some interest rate exposure, at the same time, though, from a, again, from a portfolio perspective, long-duration bonds still have a role to play in terms of diversifying. You know, we've seen this, you know, certainly during the sell-off where some yields, back-end yields, uh, you know, at least held steady and, and rallied a little bit. So they do give you some kind of protection. Uh, and so it's it, while the yields are low and they could go higher, in the context of a multi-asset portfolio, you dominate by equity risk, there is still that role for bonds. So, uh don't abandon them entirely. I think just tactically, you'd want to reduce some of the exposure to them. I know we're beginning to come to the end of our time together today. We've covered a lot of ground. So, Jason, Christina, thank you very much for the insights you've shared with our listeners, our clients. Uh, maybe in the way of final thoughts, takeaways, what we can do, Jason, uh, we will provide the final word to our guest, Christina Hooper. So, Jason, I'll go to you first. If there is anything in the way of final thoughts or takeaways you would like to leave us with today. Well, you know, aside from, uh, you know, still staying constructive on the full year, one of the views that we've had kind of from the get-go is that there are multiple paths, you know, the way that the economy could evolve this year, um, you know, ways that could be very good uh, and uh, or, or more negative. I think sometimes the markets tend to focus, you know, more on the pessimistic side, especially now given inflation is still very elevated. Growth has you know, had some troubles to start the year because of Omicron. But there are also upside cases that tend not to get appreciated. Uh, and if that's the case, then you can see equities moving much higher this year. And that really is kind of predicated on you know, inflation moderating more quickly than expected. The Fed, as a result, then being able to kind of dial back some of its hiking expectations. Some of this is also predicated on you know, businesses, you know, adapting to the fact that there's, there's, you know, labor shortages and, you know, tight supply constraints. And they become more productive. And just, you know, today we got some data on fourth quarter uh, you know, productivity growth, and it was very high. It was around 6%. And it, it's a volatile series, but for last year overall, I think it was around 2%. If productivity can continue to stay high as inflation moderates, there's a scenario where things actually, you know, by the end of the year, look actually much better than they do right now. And I'm not saying that should be a base case, but it's a certainly a scenario that tends to get far more discounted, ignored versus, you know, base cases and bear cases, especially right now when we're hearing people thinking like, it's going to be a very challenging market as the Fed tightens this year. There is a different scenario, and I think it's important as a, an investor to kind of think through all the scenarios, and that's one that tends to get uh, you know, ignored a little bit too much. Thank you, Jason. And then, Christina, I'll go to you for any final thoughts or takeaways you would like to leave us with. So first and foremost, this is an environment um, in which we're seeing a lot of volatility, and that's likely to continue. Uh, this is a digestion phase. Uh, but I'm always reminded of the old adage, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Uh, and and while I, I don't uh, advocate for any kind of extreme behavior, I think that's always an important thing to keep in mind, that we can't let emotions control what we do, um, that we don't want to overreact to a sell-off um, or experience an extreme level of FOMO when stocks are going up a lot. Um, I've never um, 
you know, this is the kind of environment that, that's made me appreciate more than ever um, the value of having an investment policy statement, of being well diversified, whether you're an individual investor or an institutional investor, having those um, those guideposts and uh, essentially creating in a vacuum, um, an emotionless vacuum, one's asset allocation, one's tolerance for BAMs, um, and, and allowing the investment policy statement to do the heavy lifting so that emotion doesn't um, get in the way of, of achieving longer-term goals. Um, you know, Jason very rightly pointed out there are a variety of different scenarios of how this could play out this year. Um, and and uh, we certainly come out with a base case as well as two alternate tail risk scenarios for that exact reason. Uh, so, so I can't stress enough the importance of being well diversified. I'm sure one can make tactical uh, overweights and underweights, but I think it's very important to to um, to follow a, a disciplined approach, um, and again, not be um, not become afraid when there is a market sell-off. We've gone through some pretty pretty significant a uh, pretty significant sell-off thus far this year, as we've talked about. And I just want to make sure that doesn't scare people out of markets. We saw that happen to a certain extent in the global financial crisis, and many people missed out on a very strong rebound. So I think being disciplined and diversified um, and taking the emotion out of it is really critical, especially in a year like this year. Well, Christina, Jason, thank you very much for dropping by the podcast to share with our listeners, our clients, your insights, your guidance. It's always great catching up and hopefully we can do it again soon. There is a lot here we can certainly follow up on, though. Christina Hooper, Jason Dreho, thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it as always. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Christina, for joining us today. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer. 